also now how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. So we're in First Kings 19. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he rose and he ran for his life. He went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. It is enough now. Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then as he lay and he uh, slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and there by his head was a cake of bake on a, a cake baked on coals, and a jar of water. So he ate and he drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, "Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you." So he arose and he ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant and torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. So it was, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in the mantle. And he went out and stood on the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way. Go to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, and Abel, Meholah, you shall anoint as prophets in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there, and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with him, and he was with the twelfth. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle upon him. And he left the oxen and he ran after Elijah. And he said, Please, let me kiss my father and mother, then I will follow you. And he said, Go back, for what, I have, uh, for what have I done for you, to you? So Elisha turned back from him, took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment, gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. Father, we pray that you would bless this word to our hearts, that you would give us understanding, and we pray for your, that you would speak to us 
through these words. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks for coming. It's, uh, it's always an interesting day when you read about Elijah, isn't it? <laughs> there's, always, there's always some kind of uh, seemingly crazy accounts, you know. But it's, it is interesting when you look at the lessons that are taught in the passage. We know that just before this uh, threat by Jezebel, what had happened, we, well, we read a little bit about it yesterday, right? But then after that, he goes to Mount Carmel and he has his great taunt, you know, with the prophets of Baal and with the people, really. It really wasn't the prophets of Baal that he was concerned about so much. It was that the people were stuck uh, and they, they were too afraid to choose the Lord. They had no faith. And so he had to show them you know, who, who God was, ultimately. And so it's an interesting in that moment of great victory that he had. If you recall the passage in uh, verse 18 and the account of how, you know, God, you know, how the prophets of Baal had tried to, uh, they had accepted the challenge of Elijah and tried to bring uh, fire down from heaven to uh, burn the offering that was on the altar and they did it they tried all day did everything that they could cut themselves beat themselves uh, did everything but they, it, they couldn't do it and then Elijah of course pours I forget how many 12 barrels of water on top of the altar floods it you know and there's so much water it's unbelievable no fire will be lit there and then makes a very short prayer and fire comes down from heaven uh, burns the alt- burns the offering, burns the rocks on the altar, and then it says licks up all the water you know that was around it, and then of course they kill all the seven, all the prophets of Baal, and uh, the people rejoice. And so it is interesting. And then of course the drought ended. He runs. Remember he ran after the chariot, and the dr- and the the drought ended. And um, but <laughs> everything seems to change relatively quickly after that when. For some reason, uh, after great victories, and I don't know why, um, but I feel that this can happen to many of us. And maybe as a pastor, after you've had a, a victorious Sunday, you know, and uh, you feel like you had an awesome weekend or a community week for Elgin or whatever, and then you get depressed or something, I don't know, or some sort of, I'm not talking real depression, but like, a, I don't know, you just start to ask questions and wonder, what the heck am I doing here? <laughs> you know? Why did I even do what, what? What did that even mean? You know, uh, I remember and I was so excited. We had our 10th anniversary service. We had all kinds of the big buildup, you know, to it. West was there and 175 people came out to the service and kids. And it was awesome. And we didn't even try that hard, really. I and mean, we did, but it wasn't like we contacted every single person that had ever come to our church or anything like that, which would be, I mean, literally probably a couple of thousand, right, uh, over time. Uh, that had stopped in for whatever reason. But um, it was still a, quite a victorious day. You know, it was a, a wonderful thing, and I recommend it, you know, because it allowed us to reflect upon the work of God and the souls that had been changed. And we did a big video of all the people that had had to move on for one reason or the other to other parts of the world or other parts of our country. Um, or actually many pastors who ha- we had... Um, we had like a mentoring program where, you know, some of these guys from uh, Baltimore, uh, Maryland Bible College and Seminary, especially foreign students, would come down for a year or two with me and learn. And then they went off and many of them started their own churches or took over churches overseas. It was really great. 
<laughs> but then, you know, afterwards, it was so funny. Uh, the next week, I think there was uh, 60 people in church, <laughs> you know, and then it was like, what? You know, where did everybody go? And, uh, you know, because all the, you know, it's just like, what happened, you know? And that has happened so many times, though, uh, where you have this after-event effect, you know, uh, where you have this great build-up, and then afterwards, uh, seemingly like a depression or, uh, or the enemy comes after you somehow. But uh, he was afraid of Jezebel. And uh, I don't know why, but sometimes after great victories, there are these seemingly disastrous times, you know, where we feel like we're, we're running for our lives, literally. <laughs> the fear factor. <laughs> you know, there is that fear factor that comes with, um, you know, our team growth and our discipleship. Um, there's this fear factor that happens to us time and again where I believe the devil tries to get in and to discourage us. And we feel like we're running for our lives. You know, we feel like we can't breathe, you know, and just for some reason we wonder about our calling and we wonder, you know, because what happens, I mean, I, I, mean, I don't say that, but it's like, I, I like where it says, number one, um, you know, he fled Jezebel. Number two, he ran for his life. And then number three, he prayed for death. <laughs> if you want to die that much, just let Jezebel kill you, you know what I mean? Just stay and let, let, her, do, let her do the job. And I think what happens is that we doubt uh, the importance uh, of the mission. And I really think that's what happens. We, we begin to doubt, not just, I don't know about if it's exactly the importance of the mission or the importance of the missionary, us. You know, we, de- we begin to doubt our relevance in the situation. We begin to doubt who we are uh, as a leader. Am I a leader? Am I really a leader? Did, did God make a mistake? Did, did, the person, did uh, Pastor Schaller make a mistake in my case? You know, um, did Pastor Harry make a mistake, you know, putting uh, Pastor, Jack, Pastor Jack and Nicole in charge? You know, definitely. No. Sure, you, know. you know, I mean, you know, what mistake has, been, has happened here that put me in charge? You know, we're looking around and saying, wow, how did that happen? You know, because really you think about it, who needs me? And in the ultimate sense, you could say, yeah, God doesn't need us. God can do whatever he wants to do with whomever he wants to do it. He, he um, used a jackass to speak to Balaam, you know, and to prevent Israel from being attacked. And so there's, or from being cursed, I should say. But what happened in this case, and I think it's interesting if we go back into the scripture here, into the account of Elijah, it seems like <clears throat> after Elijah had you know, had this fear, and then he began to run for his life. Um, you know, he went down to uh, Beersheba, um, and then he went a day's journey in the wilderness because he was retreating. And I don't know that what he did was necessarily a good thing, but uh, it was ultimately, I think, because he did sense the uselessness of life and the uselessness of power without the power of God. Uh, in his life. And um, I, I don't know that we can always depend on the fire coming from heaven. Sometimes we also, like the Apostle Paul, end up in a, a Philippian prison with our buddy Silas getting whipped as a Roman citizen and beaten. Uh, and then we wonder, you know, what am I doing wrong? You know, how did I get into this situation? And I know I talked about it a little bit last night, but 
there is this um, idea of retreating. Elijah seemed like he, in this particular case, it seemed like he was giving up. And giving up is certainly what some people do. Not that many, really. I mean, there are churches that go out of business. There are pastors that fail. There are ministries that fail. There's a lot of churches that close up. But I think a lot of those statistics, I've read some articles in Christianity Today and others that really question a lot of statistics and have gone back to research where the statistics came from. And even the statisticians who are quoted say, I never said that, or that was way taken out of context. Like there's this one idea that somehow 1,700 churches a month in America closed down, or 17 pastors, I'm sorry, quit the ministry. And how many pastors are depressed and how many uh, have, unfaith- have been unfaithful in their marriages and all this kind of stuff. And it turns out that these are very, uh, they're very uh, weighted uh, statistics uh, for one little group of maybe pastors who were already having problems, you know, and different things like this. And they somehow got blown up into these articles that say that, man, we're all just a bunch of bums that don't want to be doing what we're doing. You know what I mean? When in fact, the majority of pastors that I've ever met in ministry, I mean, they are on fire. They're excited. They're not giving up. They've been through struggles. They've been through hard times. But they are faithful men who love their wives uh, and faithful wives who love their husbands. I mean, these are not people that are are looking for some type of uh, excitement other than the mission of God. By the same token, the truth is that oftentimes we do get a little bit tired. Uh, We do get a little bit worn down and we do begin to wonder a little bit about what our calling is. I don't think it is anything that's not natural, you know. I think it happens in regular jobs as well. Our job is a little bit different because we're dealing not just with the temporal existence but with eternal lives. So we literally have in some senses, you know, the lives and the futures uh, and the fates, if you will, of many people in our hands or, uh, you know, with the words that we say. And the power of God, you know. So doubting the importance of our mission does happen when we say, who am I? And Elijah here was certainly making a retreat. And there are times, I think, that it does make sense for us to evaluate our vision. You know, we have a vision, right? And a vision is so important. I have a, something I wanted to read you about vision. And it is from, um, from J.F. Strombeck and his book, Disciplined by Grace. And it says this, it says, Vision plays a great role in the lives of men. A vision will keep a man in a straight course until, until it is realized. It will bear him up during days of severe trial and hardships. It will cause him to deny himself things which might interfere with the fullest accomplishment of his vision. A vision is a vision, I'm sorry, is a great disciplinarian. It is a true teacher. A vision is one of the greatest formative influence in the lives of any individual or group of people. And so vision is very important. I mean, without a vision, we know that people perish, people cast off restraint. Without a vision, we don't know where we're going. So we do have to maintain the vision. By the same token, we also understand, even in Elijah's case, that there are times when we retreat. It's not that we are retreating in defeat, but we are making what I would call more of a tactical retreat or a tactical or a, yeah, a strategic retreat 
where we are backing off, I told you, I, I don't know if I told you last night or not, now I forget. Um, but back in the day when I had a large group of people from the Bible College and others who were helping me in our church plant, and we certainly got the ball rolling well, and we were moving along. We had all kinds of things, probably more than we should have in many ways going on. We had Bible school classes going. We had outreaches all over the place. We had a woman's ministry. We had just so much stuff going on just about every night of the week and for a, a fairly young and new church. And we were stretched at, at every, uh, every which way, buying equipment, doing all kinds of stuff, you know, picking people up, going on mission trips, all kinds of great, awesome things. And then many of my uh, team began to themselves kind of go back to the Bible college. Many went away overseas because they had graduated or whatever the case was. But it got to a point where it was just me, more or less, and a couple helpers. But that weren't like, you know, you have your people that are kind of um, ministerial, in, in the sense of the spiritual aspect of it. And then you have those that have the gift of helps that do things like collect the offering and, and do the books for the church, and, but not necessarily having you know, the gift of you know, leading Bible studies or leading outreaches or the thing. It was pretty much me, in other words, you know, doing everything. I was leading the church services on Sunday morning. Sometimes I was even leading the worship. Uh, uh, we always have had a pretty good band now. I, I, don't even, I don't even go near it as far as that goes. Uh, I was leading the Sunday morning, Saturday morning outreaches. I was, I was teaching the Saturday afternoon Bible school classes. I was doing the men's breakfast. I was doing the women's breakfasts. I was doing everything. I was doing the midweek Bible study. I was doing it all, you know. And I was also working a full-time job. And so <clears throat> that's where the, you know, the difficulty comes in. And so at one point it was like... I'm running for my life, you know? <laughs> I'm running for my life, and I'm praying for death. <laughs> you know, it's like, what is going on here? I feel like Elijah, you know, without the cake of bread, you know, and without the water from the angel. And so, but you know, I realized at that time, and I just prayed, and I said, you know what? I don't have to do this. You know, I don't have to do this. This is God's ministry, not mine. Now, God gave me all these people, but now they are all gone. And I am trying to fill in everybody else's role without any support. And I thought, you know what? If this church is going to grow, it's going to grow without my flesh, you know? And so I literally stopped everything. I mean, if you looked at our Sunday morning bulletin, it was like empty. You know, it's a nice picture on the cover. You open it up, church. And that was it, you know. Church, you're here, by the way, so don't worry about taking one of our bulletins because you don't really need it. You're already here. And I did soul winning on Saturday, and I did church on Sunday morning, and, of course, talked to people during the week. But that was it. And I said, Pastor Shallow, listen, this is the deal. You know, of course, we're an independent church. We're affiliated. We have our own corporation, all that kind of stuff. And I had members of the church. But I said, this is what we're going to do. You know, after church, we go out and we do stuff and we do some extra soul winning and different things. And of course, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily satisfied with that, but I was like, I am not going to kill myself doing this. But I really believe that God is going to do something. And then I remember taking a trip down to Kansas City and spending about four days with Pastor Sam Miles and just kind of looking for something, you know? Kind of looking to see, well, this guy is so successful, you know? 
how does he do it? And they have an incredible, you know, personal discipleship program there. And I mean, they've even written the books about it and everything. And it was a little much. I mean, I took it all in and just hung out. And I said, listen, I don't want to preach. I don't want to do anything. I just want to come and observe. And I did. One thing, though, of all the things that I saw, which were many, one thing that I saw that they did faithfully was a Tuesday night prayer meeting. And that was it. Like, all the, that's what they did. They did a Tuesday night prayer meeting. And so I couldn't do Tuesday nights, but I did Thursday nights. And so we instituted, shortly after my return in the fall of that year, our, our weekly prayer meeting. So we added something. I said, well, I can do that. I can go and we can pray for an hour. And so I invited the church to come. People began to come. I told you the story of Dwayne and, and Marilyn who ended up taking it over, the responsibility of it over for me, and it really took a load off. But I, then that's when I began to see what God could do you know, when we spoke vision to people more. And I realized that maybe also I was not speaking vision to people. And not that I want to force a vision, but I want to speak the vision. And sometimes when we do this retreat, this tactical retreat, that is the time that we reevaluate our vision. It's not that we stop the vision, but we make adjustments in the vision. Well, the vision is still the vision, but we might have to take a few turns because maybe we went down a couple of cul-de-sacs and we got lost, you know, dead-end streets, didn't know what, you know, we went some places where we shouldn't have gone. But I think the reevaluation of the vision is more getting back on the track of the pure vision, you know, of the ministry, whatever that would be for you, uh, whatever your calling is, you know. We know one thing, and we see it in uh, the account of Elijah, that we see that our God shall supply all of our needs in Philippians 4.19, according to his riches and according to his glory. It is, our, it is incumbent upon us, though, to step back and to pray to God and to, and to complain, if you will, as did Elijah, uh, we might get to that point where we're like, hey, you know what, God, whatever. You know, this is what I've been doing and this is what's been happening. You tell me what to do. Not in a bitterness. You know, I don't suggest becoming bitter. Um, but I do suggest that there is a vision to be had and that it is important that we understand that that vision is by faith. And I would like you to turn to one verse in um, Habakkuk uh, chapter 2 and just see this one statement. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 2. And it says this. It says, Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets, that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. Now he's speaking about the word of God here. He's speaking about God's vision, what, what, Allah, what Habakkuk sees. Write it down so that others may, us, that we may read it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. It will not tarry. And so, now if we're not talking about the vision of us writing the word of God, okay? But we are talking about the vision that God has given us. And it is a good thing to write it down. It is a good thing to visually understand what our goals are in the future. What is my vision? Can I sit down and explain? If someone says, well, what's your vision, Pastor Shibley? You know, I 
that's a, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, because it's like, well, I go to church on Sunday and I hope there's more people than there were the week before. You know, I hope there's more people getting saved than there is the people than there were before. One of the things that the 10th anniversary allowed me to do was to reflect on how many people had come to Christ and reflect on even this year, how we, I let a think by the grace of God, I had the, the boldness and the opportunity to uh, do a Pastor Bruce Moon and lead a couple who was unsaved to Christ because they came to me for pre-marriage counseling. And our pre-marriage counseling was pre-salvation counseling and then salvation counseling. They got saved in my office. And then we scheduled the rest of the counseling sessions. And many of their counseling sessions became Sunday morning counseling sessions as they came to church and got saved. And then the mother got saved. And then the brother got saved of the, of the young lady. And they were sent to me by another woman in our church who had gotten saved at a Mother's Day service two years, at a Father's Day service three years ago now. And then her daughter and son became members. So now we have the seven family of seven, you know, that one by one, you know, came to the Lord. And you look back at that, and you look back at all the amazing disciples that have been built up and then have led others to the Lord, and you say, wow, God has done some. Now we want to look forward to seeing more of that happen. And that is very, uh, I, I recommend it. I recommend that you take a moment and reflect on what has happened over the past year, the good and the bad, but especially the good, right? Right? Especially the good. Because then you're, you begin to take into account how many people have been discipled and how I can do it better, how I can take more time, or how I can help others to disciple others. You know, Because that is a, a big important thing for us is to raise up disciples who will then also raise up disciples. Others who will, will do the things that God has now called them to do. Um, so we think about what is our calling. So with the tactical retreat or the strategic retreat, we go back, right? We reevaluate. We speak to God. We complain maybe to God. We ask to die, but he doesn't let us. And then what happens then? Now we begin to move forward. Now after that prayer meeting, what happened? People, we started to see more fruits. We started to see more people coming to church. We started to see more salvations. And then because of that, you know, we got, I just would have to say, a lot of spiritual excitement, you know. And um, the church began to grow again. And then another a family comes, and they become committed, and then we start a Bible study at their house. And it just seemed to happen one after another after another. So not being defeated, but retreating, you know, a little bit on things is not such a bad idea. Reflecting. Uh, when we see what happened with um, Elisha, it was very interesting because Elisha goes and um, runs. And let's go back there to 1 Kings chapter 19. You know, when I'm in church, I'm always like this, looking for the scriptures. And of course, behind me, it's all up on the board. You know, everybody's like, Hurry up, we're already there, because the other guy is definitely quicker than you, Pastor. <laughs> you and your fancy iPad. Um, so, so he goes, right? And he, he, he says to the Lord, I've been very zealous. He gets this food, this amazing food that allows him to not eat for 40 days and have all kinds of energy running, all, <laughs> running every which way, but still no answers. But when he came to the cave and he spent the night in the place, God said, what have you, what are you doing here? 
you know, what are you doing? And Elijah said, I've been so zealous. But what about these people? That's what we talked about this morning. What about these people? You know, they're awful. I hate them, you know? It's like the uh, past, it's like the guy who was, uh, you know, his mother came to his room on Sunday morning to tell him it's it's time for church. And he says, I'm not going to church. He says, what do you mean you're not going to church? I'm not going to church. I'll tell you why, Mom, because those people don't like me, and I don't like them, you know? And those are my two reasons for not coming to church. And the mother said, well, I'm going to give you two reasons. You are going to go to church. You're 50 years old, and you're the pastor. And so, you know, it's like, that's how we feel. (laughs) You know, it's like, I hate those people. (sighs) They have forsaken your covenant and torn down your altars. They stabbed you in the back, you know. And, uh, you know, people are talking about you. I got to tell you. I got to tell you. You know, you don't realize it. And you have this loving relationship with so many people. But there's always somebody talking about you. There's always something they don't like. There's always something that somebody doesn't like in the church. And not to be paranoid or anything like that. But it happens. Every once in a while you, you see it, you know, when someone leaves. And you say, why don't I leave? And, you know. They didn't like the nose hairs or whatever. No, it's usually something else. It's actually usually personal sin, uh, why people leave your church. It's usually personal sin. But they use another excuse, something they don't like, to trigger the and give them a justification. <coughs> thank you. Uh, to be able to, to say, oh, yeah, you know, that guy's no good. You know, I, I alone am left. Have you felt that way ever before? I alone am left. And they seek to kill me. And so God said, go stand on the mountain before the Lord. And the Lord passed by. And a great strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks into pieces. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But it was the still small voice. And he heard it. And he knew that this was God. He knew that this was God. There are a lot of things that happen in our, our ministries and we may or may not know or think, did God do this? You know, God ultimately is in control. But what is of God? What, is, what should we be doing? How should we react? And really, it is the time where we need to retreat. That's why they call it a retreat. You know, we retreat. It's strategic. We do it on purpose. We spend time alone so that we can hear that still small voice from God. And that we can say to God, God, and really like, not that we're disappointed. I'm not disappointed in God. God could take my life right now and I would not be disappointed with God. He has given me a great life and, and he's given me opportunities and I've missed many of them, but I've taken some of them. And, and I feel like, you know, I can look back and I can say, you know, in some measure, I can say that God has used this life that he has given me to be a blessing to others and to lead others into the kingdom of heaven. But we have this feeling sometimes that we are alone, but we are not alone. We are not alone. God is with us. We are not forsaken. God is with us. And even if we were forsaken by everybody else, God is with us. He will never leave us, and he will never forsake us. I love that song by, I think it's Hezekiah something or other, uh, I am not forsaken, you know? I am not forsaken, not at all. The Lord says, go and return. So what happens after all this, after this kind of reconciliation with God, if you will, that he has, is that um, God gives 
him a task. He says, go and anoint this king and go and anoint that king and go and... And then the amazing thing is after all of that stuff goes on, it seems that through speaking with God that Elijah rediscovers the vision, you know, and he rediscovers the vision. And then God, then he goes. And what, is, what does he do in a verse, verse 19? It says, he departed from there and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who ultimately would take his place. Um, and this is kind of what happened to me after that one retreat that I was telling you about, is that all of a sudden I found someone, you know, that would stand in the gap for me. I found Dwayne uh, Bryant and Marilyn, and then Shay Watson, and then Michelle Mullins, and, and so many others who, um, Brenda Mullins, and uh, Candon Webb, and uh, Jasmine Field, and Justin Field, and all these people now that were Elisha's, you know, that were coming alongside that were taking up the vision, that were uh, David Gonzalez's who would preach for me uh, and do all kinds of other things, and others who would come out and do homeless ministries and, and plead for me to let this poor homeless person stay at the church office, which I said no to. And because it's just like, no, I can't because this other guy lives there and he's, it, wouldn't, it just doesn't work. But, you know, and learning how to give more and, and partake more in the community and, 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 and really... Uh, Learning how to use the, God, the people that God had already given me that I was actually um, overlooking, not taking in, not, not, I have an 82-year-old assistant pastor, you know, Pastor Ron Swingle. He's amazing. But for so many times, I've just, oh, yeah, oh, Pastor Ron, yeah. And I'm like, why isn't this, I'm thinking in my head, why doesn't this guy just not come anymore, you know what I mean? Because I'm a jerk, you know, basically. Not realizing that the, here is a man you know, that is committed to this ministry, you know, and, and God told this to me, and, and I began to use him again more and more, actually at 82, probably more than he was at 75, you know, just uh, not necessarily knocking on doors anymore, he has a hard time with his knees and stuff walking around, but I'll tell you, the guy is phenomenal, and he has become a, really a resource for some of our young people, um, of all people, right, an 82-year-old guy ministering to the young men and the young women, uh, and then the young families and the young leaders, because he is a respected man of God who himself has started church and uh, has a great testimony. And so to learn how to use the people uh, and to use the gifts that God has given them in our team, you know, like we have a team, our team is the church, and uh, God will help us to discover um, those resources that we have if we're available to listen to God's words in those situations and not try to do everything ourselves, you know, not live in frustration, but to live in the calling that God has brought us um, to. And so such a great relief for Elijah to know he's not alone, you know, he is not alone. There's 7,000. I've reserved 7,000 and, and I'm going to appoint a couple new prophets to, to help you and then ultimately replace you. Because we all will be replaced eventually, right? But, um, and that's what he did. And Elijah, Elisha was one of them, a faithful, faithful servant. And so, ah, it's amazing. It's amazing, isn't it? It's great to have those helpers. It's great to have those people that God is going to raise up. So this is it, you know, running for our lives, praying for death, but having God renew our vision, renew our vision. So... We mount up with wings as eagles.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together, and we pray that you bless our question and answer time right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.